One of them is the brain-computer interface migration into like this hive mind world. And it's not, I don't think it's, this is not next week. This is not, this may not even be 2030s, but the technology is moving shockingly. Like I, I, nobody, 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 nobody was more skeptical about brain-computer interface stuff than me. And, um, but I started when I read Charles Lieber's original research out of Harvard that Elon Musk is building his technology out of. I was like, holy crap, this is a lot farther along than I like. Now this is a problem of scale. It's not a can it work? No, it it works. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals? organizations for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting nothing is ever the same again breakthroughs our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance access the minds of maverick scientists groundbreaking innovators and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance so you can feel your best perform your best and accomplish your boldest goals I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with the Flow Research Collective, and welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. All right, today's episode is a fun one because we turn the tables a little bit. You're actually going to hear Stephen Kotler, my partner here at the Flow Research Collective, being interviewed by two guys, Charlie and Ben. And these guys are the faces behind the famous YouTube channel, Charisma on Command. Charisma on Command is probably a channel you've heard of. It's got over 4 million subscribers on YouTube. And both Stephen and I have been a big fan of Charlie and Ben's work with Charisma on Command for for a number of years now. And about six months ago, at a party in Venice Beach, I actually bumped into Ben who ended up knowing of Steven's stuff, and so we set up this interview. Anyway, it's a really fun episode, and it's a chance to hear Steven go into topics that he often doesn't delve into as much. You're going to hear Steven riff on everything from futurism and his book, The Future is Faster Than You Think, to dopamine abuse, psychedelics, drugs, and the backstory behind Steven's book, Stealing Fire. One of my favorite bites in the beginning is Stephen talking about tune in, turn on, and go to a bake sale, which is obviously a slight modification to the original phrase. So make sure to catch that moment. Now, quick announcement before we dive in today. If you are a coach, a consultant, or a service provider, and you've got a passion for flow, for peak performance, and you want to coach your clients in flow using a science-backed framework, then the Flow Trainer Accelerator, our new training, may be of interest to you. If you want to apply and see if it's a fit and learn more, just go to flowforcoaches.com. That's flowforcoaches.com. And you can learn more about the training and potentially train with us to become a performance coach if that's something that's of interest to you. So that's flowforcoaches.com. Now let's dive into the episode. This is Stephen Kotler, who we were put in touch with via a friend. Yep. And I was first familiar with you from your book. Actually, I didn't realize you'd written it. Abundance and, and Bold, actually. And then Stealing Fire, which is the one that I'm most interested in. So thank you so much for, for coming to hang out with us. My pleasure to yeah. meet you guys. How, how do you introduce yourself? Because I was thinking for this <laughs> intro, I was like, oh, yeah, this is Stephen. He is a psychonaut, a scientist. He does futurism. Like, 
How do you intro yourself? How long do I got? Let's do your, like, you're meeting people at a party. They want to know. Yeah. Oh, I'm an author, I'm a journalist, and I'm the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Got it. So you lead with Flow. I lead, uh, yeah, that's what I, and, you know, if it goes one step further, most of what I've written about, studied, whatever, is those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. Mm -hmm. And why, how does that happen, right? History is littered with the impossible. We see it all the time, but how does it happen? Um, That's what I studied. So that's, if I take it out another step, I go there. Because I think that's useful. I could list a whole bunch of other stuff that wouldn't mean anything. I feel like the flow is what people would jump on at a party. They're like, tell me more about that. I I need to go surfing more often. (laughs) (laughs) So what are you most excited? I started reading your, your newest book, The Future's Faster. And uh, very quickly, I was like, there's too much. I can't even, I can't <laughs> grasp all of this. And some of these technologies even make some of these amazing technologies seem moot. Like you talked about the haptic suit avatar, almost putting the transportation stuff to the side. Because it's like, why go anywhere on the Hyperloop when you can just sit in your haptic well, suit? Well, you you know why that's not going to work. I well, mean, tell you, me. You I don't. Well, of course you do. Because you, 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 I mean... You have a career that's built upon this idea that we are social creatures Mm -hmm. who need to connect, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. I think the transportation change that's coming, Hyperloop, autonomous cars, flying cars, even Elon Musk, crazy rockets to anywhere, right? New York to Shanghai in 39 minutes before 2030, if his timeline is accurate. Um, They shift really fundamental things, right? Like, What's this? How if you can go Las Vegas to Los Angeles in twenty five minutes? How big is the local dating pool? Mm-hmm. How big is the size of the right? How big ben, is this? Ben just perked up. Yeah, yeah, it's like, okay. How big I'm is the size of the local LA, school so. district? Right? Yeah. Like, where do you live? Where can you work? And there's negatives there too because one of the things that really protects the environment is cities. Cities are really great for the environment because we leave untracked, contiguous wildlands untouched, and suddenly mm-hmm. flying cars opens up. We can live places we've never been able to live before. So really, kind of foundational shifts all over the place in that and I, I, I'm spinning in circles because I can't remember what your original question yeah, so was. Wait, can I ask a Go ahead, hop in. So you, you mentioned that uh, travel will always be important because of the social oh, yeah, yeah. of people but I think you were the one who was talking about when uh, you put on a VR headset and all of a sudden it is so real that the person yeah. is in front of you that you can't convince your brain it's just an image. It is an interesting question, right? The, the question is, can VR mm-hmm. fulfill us completely socially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obviously, that has been the failed promise of technology. Like if there's any broken promise of technology, it's we're going to connect us together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Like, clearly, <laughs> well, you don't, on you that don't one, think Instagram's right? doing that? <laughs> well, I always say, like, this is a little off topic, but um, I think it's pertinent in that I came up and we were talking about this a second ago, um, I was a journalist and I covered the drug war. And I covered all sides of it. And in the in one of the communities that was advocating for legalization for years, whether it's marijuana or, or other things, there was a huge concern of, oh my God, we're going to lose a generation. Right? Like, it'll normalize. People will learn to live with it. It'll be mm. fine. But the first generation you unleash this upon, whatever the substance is, we're going to have massive problems. And it turns out, with marijuana, 
like we were so well prepared and we took so long to do it and we made it basically so quasi legal before we made it mm-hmm. right like it was it was really well done and those problems didn't occur you know where we did those problems absolutely occurred Smartphone, with our technology baby. yeah our, i mean like we we dropped that shit on the general public we were like no 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 just reach out and touch someone it'll be you'll be fine yeah right like yeah. nobody saw that coming and we really did sort of sacrifice a generation and you're still it's dopamine it's a it's a sub it's a substance of abuse in a sense even though it's a foundation yeah, yeah that's so fascinating yeah because they're taking their sweet time with psychedelics which i know is something you studied like the proof is out oh, you, there. It's I mean, so good you, for PTSD, anxiety, but it won't be there for years. But TikTok, that gets to launch immediately. And all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, no, it's just like, who knows the effects? It, it, oh, cool. It's amazing. Because I, I, I remember, like, I've been very Rick Doblin, who runs the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Research. And one of the primary reasons psychedelics has gotten as far as it's gotten. Cause, and Rick was always really calm about it. He's like, you know, the 60s was about, like, tune in turn on drop out he's like I'm, i want tune in turn on go to a bake sale like that's <laughs> that's my goal like i you know i really want to normalize this stuff and make it every day but i've known rick since 1993 right like and he, at that point we would say things like wow they're like everything we're still trying to learn was already proved in the 60s mm-hmm. there are a mm-hmm. thousand different psychedelic experiments conducted back then um we have so much data and it's only I really think like in Stealing Fire we wrote about Robin Card Harris's work the brain imaging work Mm -hmm. on psychedelics I really think that's some of the only the first sort of really new work that we've seen everything else like Roland Griffith like people I love and respect and great work but they were really reproving stuff we learned in the 60s because we didn't we don't trust the hippies and they they didn't have double blind modern research standards and some of the stuff and there were good reasons to do it but we haven't like now is the very first time we're like oh this is new we didn't know that before Mm -hmm. we're all over the place here but we'll get we'll get back to everything but you talk about how psychedelics have been pushed down by the powers that be Mm -hmm. over the course of history in the 60s is is a great example reefer madness comes in they shut down the lsd research in a lot of these laboratories why is that not going to happen again the 2020s 2030s I'm not. I don't. So I still like the psychedelic renaissance that's now going on and the way people are using these substances is just as, if you want to call it, reckless as we saw in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Now, personally, I, I'm of a, like people want to run around. They want to call it plant medicine. They want like yeah, fancy yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Like, you're doing drugs. I've got no problem with people doing drugs, right? Every now and again, if you want to radically alter your consciousness with a substance, booze, THC, acid, I like, that's fine. Shake the snow globe. Take a vacation. Have fun. I got no problem with that. But gussing it up with meaning and all kinds of stuff that, like, it's just as reckless as, as, as what came before. It's going to have the very same results. What I don't think is going to go away, because what is really rigorous this time, is you can't marginalize the compounds. Mm-hmm. You say, wow, they, they, they can go wrong. They can be used ineffectively. They can be used recklessly. Um, and I, you know, again, I like, I think it's individual choice. You want to do this stuff recklessly? Mm-hmm. The last time I went out, I did acid. It was a while ago, but I went skiing. Right? <laughs> like, I, mean, I was skiing, oh and I ski fast. So, like fifty miles an hour on acid, you know, through, like you're avoiding trees that aren't even there. You know, it's funny. I was about to ask what recklessly meant, but now that's I get what it. I mean. And okay, I like, like oh, I mean, no, I mean, like it was totally, absolutely, completely wrecked. Yeah. There was yeah. nothing like sacred or whatever. Like sure. a, I had been working nonstop for a really long time and could not get a vacation, and so like. It was an enforced vacation. You had the forced vacation of the actual drug trip and 
the next day you feel so crappy you can't work so mm-hmm. it was like it, it was a, and i think there's real value in in that um and these are not i don't that may be the last time i did a substance got it um right and that was a good two three years ago at this point that sort of aside the medical side of this as a treatment for trauma as a treatment for depression as a treatment for some of the very intractable conditions i think we're going to end up finding that flow the the point is that a lot of stuff that we can't seem to fix the reason is is because you need to change states that's Mm -hmm. how you do it that's Mm -hmm. how the system is designed to fix that's how the biology works so you can't fight the biology obviously um and what we're learning now like that that stuff isn't going to go away um, there, I don't think the reckless behavior is going to, you know, what I, I <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. derail it for good anymore because holy crap, depression is massively widespread. It is a huge scourge on society. It costs us billions and billions and billions of dollars each year, not to say nothing of the suffering quotient. And wow, substances like ketamine and MDMA and psilocybin are having m- nearly miraculous effects. Yeah. In some of these intractable conditions, OCD being treated by magic mushrooms. You know, mm-hmm. take your pick. There's a lot of these things. Um, there's going to come a point, by the way, 10, 15, 20 years from now, when we've figured out the neuropharmacology and exactly what's changing in, in the brain during state change. Right? There's going to be... And there's other ways There's going to be other ways in and things like that. And you can get the, all the same, I think, better results through flow, but... You, it doesn't happen as quickly, right? Yeah. It, it's even if you look at the uh, PTSD work that we talked about in Stealing Fire, where they used um, one to two psychedelic sessions, could significantly reduce symptoms of PTSD or cure it. Um, they compared it to meditation and flow, and it was with surfing is what they used. This was done at Camp Pendleton with soldiers with PTSD, and they put over a thousand soldiers through it out on the water. Out on the water, right? And it was five weeks. I think we were surfing twice a week, and it was followed by group therapy of surfing to produce flow followed by talk therapy essentially the same protocol they were using with mdma mm-hmm. but um surfing instead of the psychedelic took five weeks meditation took about four weeks but the results weren't quite as good um so we the comparisons are happening and they're there did did surfing do as well as psychedelics it did exactly as well as wow. psychedelics um it just took longer yeah it took that's five crazy. weeks um i will also tell you i think over time Surfing is going to be the more sustainable practice. Yeah, right? yeah. Because I mean, I've I've had uh, plant medicine, drug, we call them what you want, <laughs> psychedelic experiences, and they're incredibly profound. Obviously, in the moment, and then there's a, a very quick half life where where it you're going. I'm trying to capture as trying much to, of this as I can. Let me ask you a question. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Absolutely. but you, you just got at something great because I want to ask. This is what I said to somebody yesterday. Mm-hmm. And th- I'm always cautious. I always say personality doesn't scale, biology scales. So if it just works, for, if, I, if it's my experience, I'm always suspicious of, mm-hmm. right? That said, um, I've done a lot of psychedelics over the years. And it has, I've have insights. I've learned in things about the universe that may or may not be true. <laughs> has it, has one of those experiences altered my performance on a day-to-day practical, tactical, right? I'm a really practical, tactical person and that's what we focus on at the flow research collective so i've never made any day-to-day life changes this is how i live my life these are my routines this is how i do my work like none of that has ever come out of psychedelics for me i'm unwilling to say i mean i'm sure other people have that's not been my experience Hmm. i wonder so what what are your were the experiences you had i feel like part of what makes psychedelic and any sort of treatment work is the container in which it was in so i've i've meaning that 
it's sacred in the the setup that you have an intention that you go in with there's a talking circle afterwards and then uh, on my part a concerted effort to integrate the things that you saw so you had a profound experience of love what does this mean for my relationship with my mom my dad my brother my sister my friends so that i don't i I can't say that it was just the substance but for me on my my life is transformed completely uh no basic level i have a dog now that i w- went out and said i need to learn how to love more deeply and i Look, need to have a you creature know my to- wife and i have been running a dog sanctuary for ever. really oh yeah we that's do hospice amazing. care and special needs care for oh, dogs that's, that's so so for me it, one of the things that i took and we don't need to talk too much about my personal experience because as you said you know does it work for the most people is more important than what happens to the individual but it pointed out that I uh, was very individualistic, you know, getting ahead myself, forming contracts and agreements with friends and business partners in order to mutually grow. But there was very little unconditional love. So when your dog craps on your carpet <laughs> and throws up everywhere, how does your relationship change? And for me at first, it was very conditional, which is like, now I love you less. You pooped on my carpet. And he's been a very good trainer of, I don't love you less. I clean up the poop. I try to chastise, reprimand you so you don't do it again. But the flow of love is not contractual or contingent. So that for me has been uh, and something that I'm learning to apply in other areas of life. But I think it has it has been valuable and to say for every individual, you know. And I, you've, you've only done psychedelics in the realm of. I've never personal, gone to a concert. I've never gone skiing. So I, 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 don't, I don't know if you've done <laughs> I did, By the way, I always tell people, you know, there's a, if I was training people in the shit that worked for me. Yeah. Right. Mostly, I'd be teaching you how do you ski at fifty miles an hour. We're listening to hip hop at top volume. Is that it? Right, like that's what I'd be. So yeah, teaching what's your people. preferred flow state for, I, for I, change? I so. Also, what's your shortest definition of flow for people who have never let, heard yeah, the word? Let, yeah, let's 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 walk because <laughs> we've said it a bunch. Let, let's walk in a, a bunch of ways. So flow is scientifically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best and there's tons of synonyms runner's high being in the zone being unconscious the forever box stand-up columnists call it the forever box Ah, Um, i like that so there's the, the lingo is literally endless um and more specifically it's just those moments of rapt attention total absorption you get so focused on the task at hand and what you're doing everything else just disappears mm-hmm. right I can say it more formally and say your sense of self and self-consciousness vanish time dilates which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely yeah. it'll slow down you get a freeze frame effect or it'll speed up and five hours go by in like five minutes and throughout all aspects of performance both mental and physical go through the roof and um, so that was where we started that's what flow is in mm-hmm. your question here's what so um, this is something that we believe is true. We have a lot of uh, data to be true, but there has not been enough science. And I can't say for sure this is true, but this is something that, that we think is true. Um, and we've been using it with people and training them, talking about this for a while. So what I think is true is most people have a primary flow category and a secondary flow activity. I'm not saying that you can't get flow elsewhere, but for me, I will get the most flow while skiing. Okay. 90% of the time when I go skiing, I'm going to get into flow. Writing is my secondary act, right? And 75% of the time when I sit down to write, I'll get into flow. Most people are like that. I, it is very... In that they have a primary a and a primary secondary. secondary. Not um, that it's skiing and Right, no, no, no. <laughs> and usually, like, your primary is usually that thing that you did as a kid-ish yep. and stopped doing. I was a singer. I was a dancer. 
I did jigsaw puzzles. I studied dinosaurs. Whatever it is, that's usually, right, that's often the primary flow activity. And so the first thing to know about flow is it's essentially a focusing skill. And we can talk about why that is, but it's a particular kind of focus. And like any other thing that changes the brain, there's neuroplasticity involved. So essentially, the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So if you want more flow at work, one of the best things you could do is start spending an afternoon a week doing your primary flow activity if your primary flow activity was mm. tap dancing. Mm -hmm. And a couple of things. So flow is a massive amplification. And I can put numbers around it if you want. But we know, for example, creativity can accelerate 400 to 700%. It's a huge spike in creativity. And there's neurobiological reasons why. And we can talk about that if you're curious. But Teresa Mobley at Harvard figured out that that heightened state of creativity will outlast flow. Flow is like a 90-minute, two-hour experience most of the time. It can vary, but that's average. Um, that heightened creativity will last a couple of days. Mm -hmm. So you can spend lunchtime surfing get into flow, come back to work, and that heightened creativity is going to be with you the rest of the day and tomorrow. Bonus, you're also training your brain to get into flow better. So the next time you go surfing or the next time you try to get into flow at work, the brain gets there a little easier because you're grooving pathways through the brain, and it's this, they're the same pathways. So I don't know if that answered yeah, your yeah. question exactly, but like if you're looking for, oh, I want more flow in my life, where do I start? One place you can start is, honest to God, figure out what used to make you feel this way. Do more of that and don't feel guilty. Don't feel, right? Like a lot of people who are interested in peak performance, a lot of people who are listening to your podcast want, they don't, don't relax easily. Mm -hmm. Hard to take an hour or two to do something like tap dancing or mm -hmm. right surfing or whatever if you're very success focused and career mind and all that stuff because you don't think that's going to help me be better. And the truth of the matter is, no, it really will. Is there, obviously it's individual, but do you find, what is it, the Flow Research Center, do you find that there are reliable, like, Writing's the way in for many people, or surfing oh, so, is the yeah, way let in. Me, so, like, what is yeah, there me, a big category that stands out? Yeah, no, let me, let me, yes, let, let me just walk you in because uh, mm -hmm. you'll like it. So, this is uh, this is not just our work that we've been very involved in. This this is work that goes back to me, high chicks me high, sort of the Godfather of flow psychology. Yep. A lot of other people have worked on it. So, what we now know are that flow states have triggers. These are preconditions that lead to more flow. And the easiest way to think about this is flow follows focus. It can only happen when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So there are 22 known flow triggers. There are probably way more, but there are 22 we know of. And they all do the same thing. They all drive attention into the present moment. And they do this in one of three ways. They either drive norepinephrine or dopamine into your system. And norepinephrine and dopamine are two their pleasure chemicals and reward chemicals, but neurochemicals are multi-tools, right? They serve a lot of different functions in the brain, and both dopamine and norepinephrine are powerful focusing chemicals, right? When they're in our system, we're excited, we're enthusiastic, we can't stop thinking about the thing that we're thinking about, we can't stop paying attention. These, that combination, by the way, is the same cocktail as romantic love. Mm -hmm. So like the kind of obsessive focus you have in romantic love, it's that combination, mm -hmm. right? So triggers either drive those neurochemicals or they lower cognitive load, which is all the crap you're thinking about at any one time. Sure. And if I lower cognitive load, I free up more energy to focus. So there's 22 triggers. They all do one of those three things. Some of them do two, some of them do three. And they vary. So there's a whole series of dopamine triggers. So anytime you take a risk, physical, emotional, psychological, 
uh, you get dopamine. Novelty produces dopamine. Complexity. Uh, so when you look up at a night sky and you see an overwhelming amount of complexity and it's sort of like the brain sort of pauses to process it, mm-hmm. right? Freezes, you have awe. It's the front edge of a flow state, basically. Um, and unpredictability. Also, uh, pattern recognition, when you link two ideas together. So you've done a crossword puzzle, that little rush of pleasure when you get a right answer, that's dopamine. And you get it because whenever we link two ideas together, pattern recognition, it's really good for our survival, cause and effect, right? Helps mm-hmm. us get more food. Um, you get dopamine. So there's a whole bunch of triggers that drive dopamine and so forth. Um, and there's you know individual triggers, what would drive me into flow or you into flow? And then there's the shared collective version of flow state, what's known as group flow. It's a team performing. At the chanting best. and marching right. together. Chanting, marching. Together. And there's, so there's 10 group flow triggers. And you'll like this because we were talking about improv comedy earlier. The guy who did the research, his name is Keith Sawyer, is now at the University of North Carolina. What he did is he filmed Second City Television, the improv comedy feeder troupe for Saturday Night Live, yeah. for 15 years and would. Then he developed this incredibly painstaking frame-by-frame analysis technique to look at the video. And he was sort of doing what you guys do for charisma or, you know, people skills. And he would say, okay, he's looking for the moments that the... It clicks. It clicks. Yeah. Everything clicks. Laughter. Yeah. You can j- judge the audience laughter because the mm-hmm. audience laughter goes way the fuck up, right? Everybody's funny all of a sudden. It's clicking. And so he worked backwards from that moment and he started asking, well, what is everybody doing? What's happening? And it's gone. For, a lot of people have built on Keith's work. Um, and there's lots of different subdivisions in, in group flow. There's relational flow, me and you talking together. There's something called team flow where the flow triggers themselves are sort of built into the foundational team dynamics so that you don't actually even have to do anything there that like the way the teams are ordered yeah exactly I'll give you a really great example of that is uh, skunk works in so most companies if they want to innovate they build a skunk works and the original idea I keep bashing you're totally okay Uh, the original idea came out of Lockheed Martin we wrote about it in bold I want to say but if you look at the like there's 14 rules for skunk or whatever they were you need to be left alone you got it skunk works for people who don't know are these tiny divisions and companies that don't often have a direct profit motivation it's like go pursue your interest and we're not going to subject you to the same rigors of production that we have for every other division. Right. And best and brightest ideas, no ideas, too Mm -hmm. wild and weird. And the most important thing is autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. Autonomy. So one of his rules was you only report directly to the head of the company. Mm -hmm. You never have to, so there's no management chain um, whatsoever. All those rules turn, a lot of those rules are flow triggers. Mm. They're right. So in, that would be a case of what, what we call this team flow, right? Where like the rules for how we run a skunk works produces group flow, which is great because creativity, innovation go through the roof when you produce group flows. You have, if you want a successful skunk works, you have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's awesome that they're sort of built into some of the rules for skunk. Yeah. So when, so people sitting at home, they're going, okay, I have a free afternoon. I want to play with this flow thing. I, I'm not really sure. You know, I've kind of repressed my childhood. <laughs> that stuff's all gone. Where, where's uh, high likelihood places for me to start? Is it is it in writing? Is it in uh, vigorous activity? What is what is like one of the most reliable ways for the, a majority of people to start? Hey there, Rian Dars here. Just interrupting Charlie Ban and Stephen for a quick moment. If you are a coach, a consultant, or a service provider, or you want to become a performance coach 
You may be interested in the Flow Trainer Accelerator, which is our peak performance training that helps you master the art of coaching, become an expert in the science around flow and peak performance and learn how to put these tools into practice with clients to help them achieve peak performance. If that's of interest to you, you can go to flowforcoaches.com, pop through an application, takes about 30 seconds, and our team will be excited to speak with you. That's flowforcoaches.com. All righty, back to the episode. It's a hard question to answer because it's going to be very individual. Okay, um, that can be the answer. It's it's going to be very, very individual. Um, if you're wired for action sports or contact sports, they're both fantastic. Like MMA, that was yeah. yeah I, I was actually thinking surfing and MMA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, action sports and contact sports because there's physical risk involved, and usually the amount of risk is a lot smaller than the perception of the risk, yep. right? If you've never surfed before and I take you out Santa Monica and it's three feet, yeah, yeah. you're going to be scared, right? <laughs> three feet, three to four feet is going to scare you when you yeah. actually, you know, I mean, by the way, the first time I ever went surfing, three foot wave put me in the hospital. Yeah. So that besides that, like, you <laughs> can't risk, actually get risk hurt. risk is real. <laughs> you can't get hurt. But you got to be a moron like me to get hurt in three foot <laughs> surf. Um, no, I like, so... Is it fair to say that uh, a good way to look back on your life, if, if to tell if you were in flow, is it ends with a state of euphoria? Well, it, it all the neurochemicals that underpin flow, and there's five, um, are feel-good drugs. They're the most powerful feel-good drugs the brain can produce. So one of the things we know across the board is that the people who score off the charts for overall well-being, life satisfaction, happiness, meaning of life, those are the people with the most flow in their lives. There's a direct correlation there. General rule, by the way, so quick shorthand for how learning and memory work in the brain, the more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, better chance it's going to move from short-term holding into long-term storage, right? One of the other things neurochemicals do is tag experiences as super important, safe for mm -hmm. later. So flow, because it's this enormous cocktail, tends to be what you remember. So if I ask you, give me your 10 happiest memories from the past 20 years, some of them are going to be romantic involved right mm -hmm. so, um i'm guessing a lot other of them are going to be flow states yeah they're well, seared into memory that way are those separate like if you go out and you meet someone and you're euphoric about it could that not be when you're flirting flow. a state yeah, of could, flow? I mean, you could have relational flow for yeah. sure like when you're falling in love right that yeah. those intense converts that's relational flow at its at its finest mm -hmm. Got it. Do you have more flow? I, I want to pivot if, if you have any other flow questions, though. No, go for it. So, hard pivot right here. We mentioned this at the beginning, and I've, it's been We're going back, back to my technology. Mind. So, tech and morality. Ah. So, I don't know if you saw yesterday. What, what's the name of the latest book, by the way? The Future is Faster Than You Think. Cool. Just because I think people are going to find this interesting and want to get it. So. Cool. So, Chris Matthews, I don't know if you saw yesterday, stepped uh -huh. down from Hardball. Oh. And he kind of just went on air, and he says... I'm leaving. He does this in the first five minutes of his hour, so they're scrambling after this because he wasn't supposed to. Uh, you know, a lot of people in the past of my generation, including myself, said some things to women that are not okay, but it was okay at the time, but I'm sorry for it, so, you know, here I go. And y you get the impression that he made some uh, comments, as he says, that many men in his position at the time were making because it was morally acceptable, if not by today's standards, than by the 1950s, 60s, whatever. And so what I'm seeing is that 
our moral standards on the back of technology are changing rapidly because part of the reason that it was okay mm. to treat women the way that they were treated was because it was, it was at the home and technology changed in such a way that now we have an economic system that has women in the workplace and it's more obvious and they have more agency and all of a sudden that's not okay so i'm i'm looking at how uh, homophobia has gone from the most common name that somebody was called in my elementary school to this will stop your presidential bid, <laughs> you know, like in incredible changes in moral norms on the back of technology. And I'm just curious if you've thought what this means, because it seems like by the time that we're 20 years older, you know, in my case, 50, in your case, probably, you know, 50 as well. <laughs> I love you, man. <laughs> so by the time 20 years from now, that we're going to look back and, you know, the the having eaten meat and having Instagrammed your meal, now that there's these uh, Beyond Meats, you're really going to look back and, oh, my God, that person had a steak yeah, yeah, and he yeah. was flaunting it. I'm curious if you've thought about the moral implications at all at this rapidly changing technology. So, it's in, there's a, there's a, so that's a great question. And um, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. And the second, the caveat is mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know how coherent what but we're going to fumble our way yeah, through a bunch fumble. of stuff <laughs> i like okay. fumbling so um the first thing i have to point out is um the change we're seeing now to credit try to credit to technology mm-hmm. um and the generation that has grown up under technology is really doing a disservice to people who started in the 50s fighting really freaking hard for mm-hmm. this and into the 60s and the 70s. So you mean the social the changes that we've yeah. seen? Yeah, I mean, you have to... So I always say this to people. When I got out of uh, high school in 1985, <laughs> I hated business. Business was like Satan. Mm-hmm. Was, was did, And the reason was all the things I was interested in, passion, curiosity creativity you know like you couldn't you couldn't walk into a boardroom and say things like oh we're going to try to make this company more passionate Mm -hmm. more creative forget like triple bottom down and we want to do a social good at the same time you couldn't have those conversations men couldn't have emotions Mm -hmm. when i was a child in fact as a scientist i will tell you that emotions were not a real topic for science until 1996 when a guy named yak who's a neuroscientist at the university of washington brilliant genius um who traced the seven foundational emotional pathways in all found in all mammals mm-hmm. so suddenly people went oh wow there's actual neurobiology these are distinct neurobiological systems that produce grief and produce anger and right oh this is a real thing suddenly you could talk about emotions like we have come so far so fast it's astounding and a lot of it happened without technology or with really primitive technology i mean if you want to talk about the largest shift one of the largest shifts in perception of African-American culture, and people don't like to talk about this now for obvious reasons, but was Cosby on mm. television. Suddenly there was a safe black man in everybody's living room, and people could suddenly go, oh my God, black people aren't scared. I look, I can write Will sure. and Grace. And by the way, I know and the I people- I think these are massive transformations. I, and I know the people yeah. who created Will and Grace. They, did, they knew exactly what they were doing. They were like, well, we want to do Cosby for- gay people that's like it was it was done in i mean like great shows really good theater but like it was there was intentionality no there's someone trying to do this for people in the middle east and he literally goes on talk shows and he goes i'm I'm trying trying to do do it for animal rights i'm trying we have have a movement called dogs on film that comes out of my animal the animal sanctuary where we're trying to get hollywood to start including animal rescue and really simple dog 
rights. Don't, you know, don't go to a breeder and buy a dog. Mm -hmm. It's insane. Go to a shelter. We kill 20 million dogs a year in America, right? Don't perpetuate this by going to a breeder, that kind of thing, into television. Because it's the most, it's right. So it's and so and that's a great example of a technological shift just speeding along these. But these and yeah, and my, so my point is though, it's not the new tech. It's the like it's just that it's how do you Broad, share the information yeah, yeah. at speed, right? Is one two. Here's where things get really interesting, and this is what's sort of interesting, and exciting, and this is the first time. I don't know the first time it was written about. The first time I noticed it, there was a book by Robert Wright. Um, who called non-zero and when clinton was in office as president one day the story goes i don't know if this is true but it caught my attention that he came into work one day he had read non-zero and he said okay if you want a job at the white house by tomorrow you have to read this oh, book no. <laughs> right, so the entire white house read the book overnight is my understanding i don't know if it's true or not but i love the story anyways he was the first guy he was a game theorist and i won't, won't go into it but he started to notice that society was evolving from playing zero-sum games mm-hmm. which is like i win you lose to non-zero-sum games either we both win or everybody loses mm-hmm. and the classic example is nuclear war right either we don't have a nuclear war and everybody wins or we have one and the whole world loses, right? Climate change is, is one of those games as well, um, kind of thing. And there's a lot of... So he started to notice that we were evolving that way. Steven Pinker has pointed out we're living in kind of the most peaceful time in the history of the universe, right? in his History of Violence book. And the Harvard Development Project, where they've been studying adult development for over 100 years now, discovered that millennials, for example, are as empathetic as at age 20, at 30, as my generation was at 30 to, uh, at 40 to 50. Yep. Right? So it's, that is like where our morality is fundamentally like shifting and evolving and changing and technology is speeding along. And I think what you're looking at, the the hard, let's call it the hard wall reaction for, for, for lack of a better thing, is the pendulum always swings both ways. Mm-hmm. Right? You put an African-American man into the White House and it was followed, but right, like it's going to yeah. go back and forth. It's going to go back and forth. And sooner or later, it sort of gets to the middle ground. And it's funny because I remember we were like, like I was mostly late 80s, 90s. That was sort of, I'm an old punk rocker and I come from the Midwest. And that meant like, if you were weird in the Midwest, it didn't like, there was there were no divisions. Like if you were a transvite communist, you hung out with the punks and the hippies. and Because it was like, we were like, Two thousand of us, and there were a lot, <laughs> right? It and could, like, you couldn't be like, intersectional. You could, yeah, you, there was no like, <laughs> like we just had to stay together because that was just us like that then, was the only yeah, way yeah. we were staying alive, yeah. right? Kind of thing. Um, and we always thought, oh god, our big breakthrough, right? Because every generation thinks they like push the ethics farther than. And we thought what we had done is we had like normalized, like in the sixties, we were doing this stuff, but they make a big deal about it. They were shouting, "Oh, look at me, equal right, right!" Like it was really loud. And we thought by like our generation, it was just normalized. Like we didn't, we really like we just didn't care. You believe what you want to look how you want to look sleep with whoever you want like whatever it is we're like we're down we're fine with it and we just don't want to make a big deal out of it and we Mm -hmm. thought oh wow this is progress that's and now we're like totally back to oh my god we got to shout about it we got to make a huge deal about it we have progress it's not fast enough we haven't gone far enough (coughs) god bless you and all those things may be right right i'm not i'm not disagreeing with that point of view um i'm just saying History is a funny way of repeating itself along these these lines. And 
whatever the technology at the time is, it seems to be advancing it forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it and, is, and so, yeah, and, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but... Well, yeah, I mean, I, just, I, I think the way I see it is that what technology does is it enables the it enables the populace to kind of have a power if that makes sense so cancel cancel culture can only exist because of social media which is to say if a big hotshot does something that um someone underneath him feels uncomfortable about well they can't report to him because he's their boss and if they go to a news station they go i can't report on this i'll lose my job but now they can just go to their own social media which allows things to to happen the way that they are so that's problem is what this, i there's see no with, there's no course correct in the system right the course correct these days is dave Chappelle, mm-hmm. right that's like that and a couple other people that's the course correct and that's the that's what we have yet yeah, i mean what we've we figured out how to move things fast and change but you know he's not wrong i'm not saying it was right or wrong but there were different times. The rules were very, very well, different. That's kind the of what game I, was very, very different. That's what different. I see with a lot of these people who are, you know, tweets from 10 years old. It's, it's, I think a lot of people view morality as if it was this absolute thing and where we are at right. in 2020 is what it has always been and it and should have it, always been. What it will always be. What it be. will always be. Yeah, that's, well, that's the thing that people well, get that's, confused and, and, about. You know, so, um, you guys probably don't know this, but I also write novels and to write the future is faster than you think because the level of technological acceleration is so complicated. And what this book is about convergence. So it's converging exponentials. It's this accelerate robotics meets artificial intelligence meets 3d printing. And what do you, and it was really, even though I've been researching this, I'm an expert in it, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't hold it all in my head. So I wrote a, a sci-fi book called last Tango in cyberspace. Um, and there's a lot of these ethical questions. And one of the things we're seeing for sure is you know one we're going to start seeing a keep humans pure movement mm-hmm. because we're going to start being able to genetically augment this and that and there's a whole punk rock biohacking movement where they want to cat's eyes and regrow tails and all kinds mm-hmm. of rear right but that's all like people are working on it and it's coming and sure. we're gonna right we're hybrids and all that stuff and so we're about to discover a whole bunch of new hates we've never had before yeah. and then we're having to overcome them and that's so you know just seems the other the other thing nobody you know with the intersectional stuff the brain whenever the brain meets another human being it asks a found anything it asks a fundamental question is this thing like me or is it not like me mm-hmm. and if it's like me i can cooperate with it and maybe we can make more resources i can have sex with it and maybe we can make more <laughs> me or if it's not like me maybe i should run away from it or maybe i should eat it right that's the fundamental question the brain is asking is it like me or not like me with brain does us them primarily because it has helped us survive and the fastest way to get the brain to put an us them is to put a name on it mm-hmm. so it's a double-edged sword, right? I now we're coming ab- back into the psychedelic I, realm. I like this. I mean, I, but I love the like, <laughs> the labeling. like if we look at what's going on with sexuality, right? We now have seventy different gender pronouns and different ways to represent groups, and that is a whole bunch of people saying, "Hey, look at me! I'm something different. I'm, I'm uh, you know, I've got a distinct, and I've got rights, and all those things are true. I'm not disagreeing, like absolutely accurate. The problem is the minute you put a name on it. You are creating it's, an us-them divide. Separated. Like you're lit- the very thing you're trying to overcome, you're fighting against the way the biology works. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong in biology, right? And we're, we're like we 
can evolve beyond that. But I'm saying, you know, in peak performance, as I said earlier, much of it is trying to get your biology to work for you rather than against you. Mm-hmm. And so I think about these things this way. I think about the ethical questions from a biological perspective and how do we make it work that way. It seems it seems to me that the us-them question, almost at its core, is do I, is this me? Do I identify with this? Is this my nation? Is this my people? Is this my uh, person who shares a belief as I do? And you, you talk about the... I forget the words that you use, but you talk about this layer of interconnectivity that's going on all around planet Earth such that our thoughts and emotions via Twitter are being transmitted instantly, but even faster than that once we get these the Elon Musk neuralinks in us such that I can feel what other people are feeling. And weirdly enough, it's not even a question at this point of, is this person like me? It's almost instantaneously, this person is me because if, if their thoughts are occurring in yeah, my head yeah those are that this was is my right hand and my left hand peter and i went to that so the book is really focused on what happens over the next 10 years and we go industry by industry right we don't go too far out but the last chapter we look at the 100 year view and we look mm-hmm. at when the way we did it is by looking at migrations because migrations are one of the largest forces for mass change in history and we're entering an era of like five of the biggest migrations in human history are all starting to unfold right now And one of them is the brain-computer interface migration into, like, this hive mind world. And it's not – I don't think it's – this is not next week. This is not – this may not even be 2030s, Mm -hmm. but the technology is moving shockingly. Like, I – nobody – Nobody, nobody, nobody was more skeptical about brain-computer interface stuff than me. And – but I started when I read Charles Lieber's original research at Harvard that Elon Musk is building his technology out of. I was like, holy crap, this is a lot farther along than I like. Now this is a problem of scale. It's not a can it work? No, it it works like it, it already mm-hmm. works. It's can it. Can we scale it up? That's an entirely different set of Weirdly problems. enough, it is, it, Twitter is happening. Now, granted, it's through the medium of me reading text. It enters my brain, creates a feeling. But if somebody tells a, a harrowing story on Twitter, they can instantaneously, essentially, create By the way, feelings this is of where compassion. The, this is where the term empathy came from. Mm-hmm. Originally, in the 1800s, this was the problem they were trying to solve. It was art theory. They were mm-hmm. like, how the fuck does a painting work? Mm-hmm. I look at this photograph and I somehow feel what the photographer was feeling mm-hmm. when like it's the photographer's emotion when they took the photo transported through time yep how does that work right it's the same it was and the it's same getting question. faster and the yeah. scales occurring so uh, one of the things that I feel like we almost have a model of this in you said it's happening faster than ever there were at one point only single-celled organisms and then I assume over the course of millions and millions of years they started cooperating in ways that eventually became indistinguishable from multi-celled organisms and I feel like like we're at this point in human history well, where we are. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that we I, we're I, at that. Can, we that, made that. that uh, I think we said this in bold. We made a mm-hmm. similar argument in bold, but you're taking it into future and faster, and you're mm-hmm. totally right. Right, the history of evolution, the history of cooperation. Mm-hmm. Right, like each, each great step forward is involving some kind of foundational leap, and we don't think of it that way. Right, we don't think of the fact that the human body is, you know, we're a multicellular organism. Mm-hmm. It's a huge cooperative entity in fact honest to god this is a legitimate question um in flow science so flow is optimal performance we are made up of a lot of non-human organisms right a Mm -hmm. lot of bacteria yeah a lot of viruses a lot of stuff that are not human and so the question we've been asking is when we say optimal performance does it mean that 
all the biology that's inside of us is optimal? Like, is the microbiome, right? Are the organisms that are not human working for the benefit of... Like, when what the red blood cell mean? goes and kills itself to prevent an invasion, I mean, is that optimal performance? Is there's it's, this sense of self that has transcended any of those individual it's cells. interesting, right? And now it's... I mean, we've seen that with armies, you know, sacrificing themselves for the good of the nation. But I feel like we're at this crazy thing because when I read The Future is Faster, or at least parts of it, I got very scared. I was like, there's no room even for me because you talk about how there's these cameras that can view micro expressions on people and instantly tell you what they're thinking, feeling. And I was like, well, there go charisma breakdowns. Uh, yeah, yeah. I see <laughs> what you're saying. That's it, it won't matter. That's the thing that I take but, away from it is but, like, there'll be no scarcity of resources. I'll be able to plug into VR with my haptic suit and we'll have a singularity. I won't need a job. Yes. I won't need charisma on command. Yes. I'll just be part of this big... <laughs> organism where my thoughts are everyone's thoughts but the but once again <laughs> like you're not losing you got, at that but point you really got, like you're winning but there's still the joy you're you guys have so much fun figuring out why matthew mcconaughey is charming yeah yeah right like like you're gonna be doing this for a while because it's what you do it's a way mm-hmm. of thinking about the world that's fun and i think that point is like we get to do more of what we want to do right and it's um we get there the hard way it's uncomfortable work technological unemployment is going to remove a lot of kind of blue collar you know the they're feel, not they're the not that i had was like this is the end of me being useful in the ways that uh, i'm so conditioned to being useful and of, of everybody but i guess we have to find new ways to become maybe not useful but just i don't i don't know what the new verb so is. i will tell you i will tell you um i came up as a journalist and i uh this, these are terms aren't going to mean anything to you, but I was what's known as a new, new journalist. New journalism was a movement in journalism in the 60s and 70s, and I was part of a, a revival group of journalists in the in the 90s. Used, most of us were on staff one way or another at GQ and Esquire mm-hmm. uh, by the end of it. Um, but it was a style of long-form narrative writing, you know, 10,000-word articles, 12,000-word articles. And it... By 2007, it was gone. Like, two, but it was just gone, right? Yeah. So, a mat, how angry do you get when you spend 30 years becoming best in the world yeah. or something, right? Literally, like best in the world, top 100, yeah. top 200, top 500, whatever list you have, and suddenly it's gone. I was so for like about six, seven months. I'd never actually like had real deep seething rage that lasted a really long mm-hmm. time um, probably other than how I felt about my parents growing up. I was just going to say that I was just going to say that sorry mom dad love you love you guys but yeah okay uh, yeah um, uh, but no so when you you know that is a real thing like when you know I watch my industry go away two different times That's, it and, hadn't occurred to me that you've experienced yeah, this because like, journalist yeah when one of the reasons I, you know I feel um okay to talk about some of these things out loud because i really like i did you know live through a bunch of them i've experienced the upside I, you know mm-hmm. I, I helped found one of the first online magazines i mm-hmm. worked on the very first video game that had biofeedback we like i was mm-hmm. in a lot of the startup early 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 san francisco stuff and i got hit by it as well and you know got my ass kicked by it so i think i've been on all sides of it um and i will tell you that a big topic of research for me you wanted to 
know some of the stuff that I'm focusing a lot on. One of the things that I focus on now a lot is what I call long haul creativity, mm-hmm. which is how do you maintain high levels of creativity and innovation over the course of a really long career? And I'm interested in one, people who have sustained their creative talent and continue to nurture it and grow it and that way or people who have reinvented themselves in fifth act sixth act mm-hmm. seventh act right and they're still like how do you do that yeah. and how right really fascinating to me it's a whole different set of skills than actually what have you found I'm, I'm personally interested because i feel like we're at the end of an act you know like i feel like we've done our thing i've i've so i was taught i was we can cut things in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, okay, so Rian actually was talking to me a little about you guys, and I said something. He's like, you should tell them. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's my place, but I'm <laughs> going to tell you, and you yeah. can cut it out if you want. Which is, he said you guys were going to get it, move away from the videos and bring in script, scripters and things mm-hmm. like that. And I, what I said is, I hope they don't do that. Mm-hmm. I hope instead they lean deeper into their craft. And what I meant by that is... You guys have only started to scratch the surface on the science of actually what's going on, and you're great at it. Nobody's breaking. Everybody I see who's doing charisma stuff or any of this stuff is trying to do what you guys are doing. You guys are better at it than the rest. You have a market advantage. The science that you've already been dabbling in—that's where I would lead. That's—I I don't know you guys. No, I don't know where I you want to go. I, I, but I, I literally—I was like, oh, I want them to double down. <laughs> I was like, no, no, no. I want them to like go go deeper and don't don't outsource this, the the craft. Double down on the cra- the stuff that's great. Outsource the stuff that sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in relating this to what you said, and we won't cut that because I, I appreciate the the feedback. What? How does one know, for instance, you said fifth, six, seven acts. Well, how do you know? That's, that's part of the issue. Is, is, it, is it time for act two or is it time to double down and, re, and, and continue on act one? And then what are the things that you've started to find in your preliminary research that enable people to reinvent themselves? Because I personally, being on YouTube, I think of PewDiePie, who's the biggest YouTuber and has reinvented himself. I don't know if you know this half dozen or more times just you know he's right. doing video games now he's doing news now he's doing this and he seems to follow his interest yeah this so this was so this peter and i say this all up peter diamant is my co-writer mm-hmm. in the future special and you think we say this a lot because people always like how do i build a business in the future but mm-hmm. and i always say is here's the greatest thing about all this accelerating technology is it all comes with user-friendly interfaces so that we tell a story in the book about a quantum computing Let's not even let's just say this is the craziest sci-fi technology right ever, and now it's real. And one of the places it's real is in Berkeley, California, at Rigetti Computing. And when we talk about that, and here's the crazy part: quantum computing is the most far future technology you could possibly imagine. You could go to Rigetti.com right now, and you can download for free Forest, which is their app developer's kit for the quantum world. And you can run programs on Forest. Over a million programs have been run by normal people. So every single accelerating technology has a user-friendly interface. And I just read this chapter, so correct me just to give people a, a little bit of grounding here. So Moore's Law is that transistors shrink in size and they double in, in power. power every short 18 months 18 or something. Months, exactly. This breaks Moore's Law to the extreme in the positive direction which is to say it goes even beyond exponential of it gets of it gets really so quantum is it's a it's a it's a weird thing right because with moore's law you have bits if they're mm-hmm. binary on off because of how quantum dynamics work you have four options or more mm-hmm. um so the way we always explain so they quibits are bits in quantum computing so 
Right now, we are at right a fifty quibit computer. Google just announced it. It it it's it sort of that was the the line was they called it quantum supremacy, which is we built a quantum computer that can solve a problem, it was a mathematical problem that a classical computer, a traditional computer, can't solve. Mm-hmm. So we we just crossed that. We're about fifty quibits. Fifty quibit computer, um, and Google didn't. It's not a really robust working. We're not really there, but let's just say we are. We're not quite there yet. Um, that's basically 50 million songs stored on an iPod. It's a lot of storage, a lot of storage, it's a lot of power, it's a lot of memory. If we bump that up to 80 quibits, so I just add 30 quibits to it, like not a huge shift. The Rigetti quantum computer that was to the previous generation of Google's quantum supremacy that you can access is 32 quibits. Mm-hmm. So we went from 32, a year and a half later, I think it was 50, right? So we're going to, we'll get to 80 fairly quickly, a couple of years. If every atom in the universe could store one bit of information, an 80-quibit computer has more processing power than all the atoms in the universe. Mm-hmm. That's what you're – it's huge. Now, wow. what does it mean in real life, like, text 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Because um, quantum isn't quite there. It's coming very soon, though, this decade. and. The low-hanging fruit is drug discovery and material science. So new materials, new, which is great for solar and some of the environmental technology, really fantastic for that. Lot low-hanging fruit is drug discovery, new compounds. Um, that's what's gonna. That's what's gonna shift first. Fast. <laughs> I have a follow-up question that's completely self-interested. Uh, so, I think one of the things that Charlie is struggling with is after doing the same creative pursuit over and over and over there's a bit of burnout which is ah. to say something that was fun oh is not fun right is that fair yeah so d- depending on who i'm covering yeah so in terms of leaning in it's not so much like yeah. oh where do i get the effort from it's like oh this used to be fun so i will tell you i've written 13 books mm-hmm. every book i set myself a different writing challenge so, like, there's my content challenge. What am I trying to communicate? And then there's a level up, make it harder. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, this last year is, could I write three books in a year? Um, I could, but it nearly killed me. <laughs> like, the answer <laughs> is barely. Barely, <laughs> barely, <laughs> barely, and really hard, and never will I do it again. Yeah, yeah. But I, right, bold was, could I write a business book that doesn't suck? Because mm-hmm. business books suck. They're terribly written. The stories are bad. They're not. They, they make up all their own terms mm-hmm. so they can brand things their own way, and you can't follow it. And then they sell you the it. seminar, right? And <laughs> Chapter right, three. The whole thing is like, a workshop. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, like you know, sometimes it's it's essentially with stealing fire. It was fact density per sentence. So you talked earlier about cognitive load, mm-hmm. right? How much stuff can you hold in your head at one time? So. We have this, when we read, every time you see a punctuation mark, especially a period, you're pausing, your brain pauses and it offloads things out mm-hmm. of like right, working memory into like medium turn storage kind of thing, or it throws it out. Um, and so sentences yeah. can hold a certain amount of facts and blah, blah, blah. In Sting the Fire, I had to write a denser style of sentence than I'd ever had to write before. And so, and I also wanted it to be a little funnier than some of my mm-hmm. other books because I thought the material needed some of that. And so I, I tried to, I always said Stephen Pinker was my model for density. And there were a couple of other models for, for humor. And that's that was the challenge in Stealing Fire. So I think you have to raise the challenge level, right? So, you know, the question... 
we were talking earlier about uh, the thing you bailed on, which was Dave Chappelle mm -hmm. uh, and the comedic simile. Yeah. Right? You, you bailed on it in, in the video. Um, well, and you said, there's no way I could do that in 30 seconds, mm -hmm. right? I could do four minutes on it, but how do I? Well, there's a great freaking challenge. Like, that's what I mean by that. Like, Scott lean it. in. And, and so how do you pick a challenge that will create flow instead of be demoralizing or frustrating. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to come at it a little sideways, uh, but this is one of the things we see in peak performance and I sort of think it's foundational. So, if you're interested in flow long term, the first thing we teach you is how do you turn curiosity into passion, passion into purpose, and then add in autonomy and mastery to the stack. These are the five biggest intrinsic motivators and they're designed to work together. Right, curiosity gets built into passion. Passion gets turned into purpose. Once you have purpose, you can know what to do with your autonomous time. Oh, I can spend my time advancing my purpose, and then mastery. The last motivator is the skills that required to accomplish my purpose. Right, and you have to mm -hmm. stack all of these in a row. Right, so when we talked about finding and to prepare for this future, right, like because of these user friendly interfaces, whatever you're interested in there's going to be a technology there, mm -hmm. right? So you literally can follow your passion in the future. So Kitty Pie on that is totally right. You really can. I, we always tell Peter and I tell people, figure out what you're passionate about. Figure out where it intersects some kind of problem in the world that you'd like to see solved. There's a technology that's sitting right there, Yeah. right? And I have to hop in here because I was talking to my Please. brother yesterday and he said, I wish I was passionate about something. I'm not passionate about anything. And I went, what are you talking about? Like, I, I see you all the time talking about basketball and playing in your free time. and do, Like, people have this view of passion that automatically incorporates what they think is a viable business mm -hmm. or career decision. Yeah. And it's just like, get that out of there because as you're saying, it's all a viable business decision at to some degree. It's, I was playing video games when I was a kid. Every adult in my life told me, what are you going to do? Play video games for a living? Yes, actually. Turns out, <laughs> absolutely. Dan DMT, anybody? <laughs> exactly. Right? So, And I see that in people. So the question is, uh, you're doing something in your free time i know you have free time even if it's television and if it's going well that show doesn't work or that show doesn't work because you know that's what i do i say this joke you know i was looking at my cool friends and going how come everyone laughs at him when he tells a joke but not at me right, and right. that's my job right, now. Right, right. so I, I just have to jump in and say you you everyone has a passion i truly believe it and i think it's more obvious than well, people me, give it credit so for. let me let's just make it more practical mm -hmm. so um you can just search my name in the passion mm -hmm. recipe. This is I wrote this for Forbes as a column. Um, but I tell people, start by making a list of 25 things you're curious about. And by curious, all I'm saying is, hey, if time didn't matter and money didn't matter and you had a free weekend, you would want to read a couple of books on this subject, maybe attend a couple of lectures, maybe sit down and have a conversation or two with an expert. Right? That's all I mean you're curious about it. Make a list of 25 things you're curious about. There's not enough energy in a single curiosity to create passion, but if you can find a place three or four or five of your curiosities actually intersect, you actually have the foundation of passion, mm -hmm. right? So look for intersections of multiple curiosities. Where did they overlay? And I'll give you, you know, the uh, 
take I mean I'm not going to give you an example because the one that's probably in my mind is the example that's going to open my new book and I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not giving it to you guys I like you guys but not that much um, trust me we're not that hard of workers that we'd beat you to <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no 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 it's just that I want to like keep it you're as a surprise for my readers it. Got it. Yeah, I don't think you're going to steal his stuff or you know my new book try. Stealing Ideas Stealing by Ideas <laughs> Stealing Ideas um I don't know if that so got it. So, so you've got a, a couple of curiosities, yeah, and then yeah. That. So just look at the yeah, look at the, for the intersection of multiple curiosities, right? Mm-hmm. And I've written the, down some questions too that I have, that I had in here, but you guys can, you guys can continue. I'm just going to pull them up real quick. Yeah. Well, what what about when you have a passion for your work and then you lose it? How do you stoke it back? That's an interesting question. Um, usually, I would up the challenge level. Usually, I would I would find a way to up the challenge level get myself curious again but that's i think sort of a personal answer much more than a biological answer i'm giving you what would work for me um i need new projects personally yeah i mean i like i i often i mean yeah i do it's i don't get so i don't give up on the old stuff i organize my wife my life differently I, your you wife, know, like my, my wife. <laughs> but I've got like you know I've got there's three things that I sort of do on this planet right and there's about three things I got to do to for those three things to work and that's my filter and those are big mission statement goals mm-hmm. so what is the high hard goal that gets me closer maybe it's a book maybe it's a magazine article maybe it's a film maybe it's a class maybe right there's a those vehicles can change mm-hmm. and i will mix those up to keep it super interesting mm-hmm. so this is the downside of psychedelics is when your purpose stops being making money or even changing other people and it becomes how do i get good at sitting on a mountaintop for a week alone and being joyful that's my purpose work right now. <laughs> work production plummets as as your pursuit of that goal increases not a problem it's a problem for me because it's not my goal it's my business partner's goal <laughs> I'll tell you about my meditation. I see. I <laughs> so, see. But so we got save time. I was just reading about uh, one of the effects oh, of yeah, all these yeah, technologies yeah, yeah. is free time. And you look at that and you go, oh, great, free time. And that was my thought. But also I've recognized that what a lot of people do with their free time is they fill it up with stuff. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that one of the great coping mechanisms of the world is things that they have to do. I have to uh, take my kids to soccer practice. I have to go to work. Because what I found is one of the biggest things that stops beginning entrepreneurs is a terror of the void, as Tim Ferriss calls it. This free, open time to explore yourself, do whatever you want, because they're afraid of what would happen. So I'm curious... And one of the things that I hope is the case is that that freed up time won't just go towards scrolling Instagram mindlessly, being on Facebook or filling your social media app, but will go towards introspection. And again, just curious if you've thought at all about what this – because all of the work is going to be done by AI, robots, other things in the medium-term future, it appears – What's well, okay, left so for, for one, not true. Okay, so, so correct well, yeah, me let, let me yeah. let me let's just let's let's back up on that one. Sure. Um, and then we'll talk about your question. But yeah. what we're seeing right now is the companies that are gaining the best benefit out of AI and robotics are not removing humans. Mm-hmm. They're collaborating. So the largest growth category in robotics are cobots, co- cooperative robots that we work together with. Bunch of companies, BMW, uh, Tesla. Two good mm-hmm. examples. Completely automated everything. They 
all robots, no humans. Mm -hmm. We're going to run the factory 247, no humans, blah, blah. And productivity plummeted. They both had to reintroduce humans back. And what seems to work best is humans and robots and AI all working together as a collaborative because there are different strengths. And I don't what see... What is the unique human strength? Yeah, so robots, is, robots never get tired. They work all the time. AI is well, going to be brilliant. Yeah, what do you say, is that just a symptom of weak AI? It may be a symptom of weak AI um, at some point and strong AI weak AI these are technical I'm assuming you're no 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 this is I don't think Ben means it technically at all (laughs) so strong AI is strong AI is an actual term that means something yeah yeah okay so um, yes you may you may be right but it doesn't seem to be entirely that way um we have really advanced, weird-ass pattern recognition system brains that can do all kinds of lateral stuff mm. that are really... It's really hard to get right computers. I'm not saying they won't get there. Um, yeah, where's our final frontier? I was going to say, do you, do, you, do you think that AI will never surpass humans well, in terms so of it does it, intelligence? So one, by the time we're having this discussion, brain-computer interfaces will have advanced to the point that we're going to be able to write... like. You're, 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 you're perceiving this as if we're static. It'll be a tie, you're and saying. they're growing. <laughs> It'll be a tie, because right? everyone will become well, a super Well, I mean, computer. we were talking about uploading our consciousness mm-hmm. yeah. to the web, right? If we have shared collective consciousness, right? These are interesting questions. Sure. And so everything seems to be evolving in its state. So I'm not worried. Like, the obsolescent stuff, that's mm-hmm. less concerning to me. The free time, the quality of, of your life... That stuff concerns me because it does seem like you free up time for people and they don't even do it. They don't even spend it on their most pleasurable activity, right? Like one of the things I always tell people is make a list of the 10 things that make you feel the best on the planet, the absolute best, and then compare anything you're going to waste your time with against that, right? I can spend 10 minutes every hour today checking Twitter, or social media or whatever or I can put that all together at the end of the day and go surfing for you know 70 minutes Mm -hmm. right or go sit in the woods and meditate for 70 minutes that sort of thing so I I don't think I just don't think with all the distractions they're not you just take it one step further and just run the run the math yeah I think that's the challenge how does this compare to this thing that brings me great joy yeah right because that's what you're trading on i think that's the challenge people face is that they they know that in conceptually but then they struggle to not get lured into the stuff that's more instantaneous so here's the other thing i was talking about this earlier you can't so flow is a cycle it's a four-stage process doesn't work like a binary you're not in the zone or out of the zone there's a initial struggle stage before the stage is a period there and then there's the flow state itself and there's a recovery period on the back end Uh, because flow is neurobiologically expensive and you actually have to shut things down on the Mm -hmm. back end and recover how the hell did we get here what was I talking about a second ago I looked at you and I got totally lost oh so you're talking about sorry you're talking about the four stages of flow and what people are going to do with their same time yeah uh, uh, distraction so on the back end of a flow state if you have a really intense flow state riding or skiing or whatever whatever for me the next day, because I've ex- I've used up a lot of the norepinephrine oh, and dopamine my brain uses to focus, I can't focus as well, mm-hmm. right? And I start every day with a four-hour writing session. That's what I like to do. And if I can't focus as well, um, 
massive amounts of distraction. You can't fight state all that much. You can't really fight your biology if you're totally if you're in that tractable, exhausted state. Oh, Tony Robbins would hate that sentence so much. <laughs> but, but what you can do is steer your distractions. So I always tell people, like, when I, God, I don't want to sit down and start writing because, you know, oh, and I skied all day yesterday. I just want to watch ski videos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Ski videos would be a waste of time, but I'm super distractible. So instead, what I will do is I will allow myself the distraction, but instead I will make it, you got to go read, go to the 100 best magazine articles of all time and start reading magazine articles. And that'll be my distraction. And I'll keep reading until I find a sentence where I'm like, oh my God, that's a cool sentence. I want to do that. And now suddenly I'm into my writing. Mm. So I go with my distractibility, my state, because you can't, it's hard to argue with it, but I use it like I let it push me in a direction where I'm going to come back to the thing, right? It's going to actually end up motivating me to do the thing that I was avoiding in the mm-hmm. first place. So I find you can, that's what I mean by like, you can't fight your biology. This is where you are. Um, okay, cool. But how can I use it to get to where I need to go? Mm. So I want to come back to, yeah, what I, where I keep coming is where where do humans fit in to the 30, say the 30-year picture, or maybe it's a 50-year picture, where if I look at the stages of humanity, at the very beginning, it's like the human's job is just to survive. It's just to help you, your family, and your tribe make it through. We evolve. We get you know, to the industrial, the enlightenment. Okay, we got to think a little bit more. We get to the industrial age. It's human's job is to produce with their hands. Then we get to the information age. It's like, no, it's to uh, think wisely and leverage your your intelligence to get even more done. And then it seems like we're eventually AI just beats us there. And and it's wiser to have... Or can replace us, can let's replace say. Us. Let's say that it's, you work becomes optional because you can always slot in an equally intelligent AI. Or maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding, but you know it's it's uh, just more economically feasible to have an artificially intelligent consultant than to have a human with my limited, even with my Neuralink upload. Do you have a vision of what the human role in all of this eventually becomes? Are we I, again like so? I don't try to go. Too far out. Too far. Too far out. Probably smart. I, mean, <laughs> I do it like in science fiction, but yeah. like it's. Well, your science fiction book was seven years out, right? Yeah, so it, was seven, then, it was really hard. Yeah, even and then you don't like, go too far. And, you know, complexity science, like, you know, small changes in initial conditions, big changes in outcome. The shit yeah. is hard to predict. That sort of makes, stuff. That makes sense. Um, so, but what I am confident of is so. Here's the thing that I always tell people if you want to be scared about technological unemployment. Is I do. That no. <laughs> every, or if you don't want to be scared about technological unemployment. I'm right? excited for it. Like, yeah. No, I mean, I every time a technology has become gone exponential, right, we have found an internet-sized opportunity tucked inside. Got it. And we haven't seen it until it's been, right? Mm-hmm. Like. If I would, if you would have come to me in 1993, or the first, which is the first time, four, the first time I saw the internet, yep. and said, "This is right, like this is going to be," I would have just started laughing at yeah. you because it was like I was bartending in San Francisco at Christy Turlington's nightclub, and my bar back Anthony Bat comes in with his like old big Mac computer, when it's the old tower with the, mm-hmm. and he's trying to set up the internet so he can show me this thing, and it's taking forever, and it's like 17 minutes to get an email, and he's like, "This mm-hmm. is going to change the." The world yeah. yeah you're like it does what again yeah, it's yeah, gonna yeah. Do what huh right it was just crazy talk 
VR is going is 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 going to produce that kind of opportunity this year, next year. AR is and the opportunities inside are, are inside. I mean, how the opportunity is going to be inside of virtual reality? Like yeah. you ask me, I you know I think we're in the we're seeing the like this is people don't realize it. I don't think, but we're seeing this is the end of podcasts as we know them. Right, they've got another. You know, you're the only two, person I've heard say that because everyone else is talking about the boom of podcasts. I think we've. I think this. I think you've got two, three years, and I'm not saying it's going to go away. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that quality will remain, right? Which is what has happened in every one of these mediums. Quality has remained. Mm-hmm. Um, the other stuff goes elsewhere. It'll go, we're going to have what, what's a what's a. I keep asking my staff. They're like, "You need a podcast." I'm like, "No, tell me what a VR podcast." Yeah, is. yeah. smart that's, question, right? That's the that's we'll have this discussion. Or right, I'm not like there are guys who are good at this stuff. I'm not. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not coming in late to a party yeah. mm-hmm. to compete with guys who are awesome at it, yep. and I'm not. Right? Yeah. That, that's crazy. I'm gonna figure out where the puck's going to be and I'm going to start you know what is what's a podcast like when you have haptics right even if I can what if I can send sensations to my listeners even crudely what is that like those are mm-hmm. questions I'm starting to ask myself yeah. and think about um and you know suddenly it's not like I think Joe Rogan is is going anywhere right like Tim Ferrett right like mm-hmm. these guys are great at what they do they're really good at doing this and as long as they continue to be interested in the medium i think the medium will have them yeah um right but i think it's the millions of marketers who are trying to start podcasts to sell whatever widget or consulting this that um thing like there that's gonna stop Mm -hmm. right but all that stuff so here's the good news about all that stuff and and i sort of like this one of the things that has happened is that you could game a lot of the technological systems because they were built on things like keywords. Or, oh, right, like, I, I immediately thought of SEO. Yeah, which so, is, right, <laughs> SEO. So, what, so here's what the other thing nobody's starting to realize is that AIs are writing books. They're making movies. They're judging books. They're judging movies, right? So what is happening is AIs are getting trained up in what does quality content actually look like. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the AIs really have a deep understanding of quality content, we're talking three, five, eight years, that window, you can't, like, SEO is gone, yeah. right? You have to, it's actually got to be based on quality. Well, even a, then, can I compete? So so let's play, I don't know if this game's going to work. Three, five, eight years, they're creating content and they're judging it. And they're spitting out to themselves and internally reviewing millions of different Charisma on Command breakdown style videos. And then they're selecting the one that they have deemed the best and publishing it. Why, can I even okay. hang? Yeah, well, so, so, but one, okay, yes, but one, you're not, A, I think you're treating your audience as a monolith. Mm-hmm. You're going to have, there's going to be a part of your audience that is like, man, I'm, I'm good with, like, I just want this technique and I'm good with AI Charlie, right? Like, that's, that's whatever that is, that's fine because I just, but like, there's going to be other people who are like, no, you know what? I like the human. I'd like the human with the errors, and maybe it's not quite right. And when I, right, there's people are people are talking about the end of retail. That's my edge is that the I make end, mistakes. Well, the end of retail. <laughs> my right, Peter, my co-author, likes to say, you know, in retail, there's two kinds of businesses: those that are that are working with AI, or those that are going to be in bankrupt in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And maybe, but like, aren't there going to be craft 
retail shop. Like, I went to a suit store and got fitted by an actual human tailor, right? Yeah, like, yeah. of course that's going to happen because we're social creatures and blah, blah, blah. I think right? there's and a movie so, that has this where they have the most valuable possessions that they own are things that were created by humans before, like, this is a future movie, obviously. Everything was perfect. Mm-hmm. And they're obsessed with their bowls that aren't actually the perfect half of a circle. Yeah. They love them, yeah. Well, there's a whole... Uh, we uh, use the term uh, stealing fire at the end of it. I can't remember. Uh, uh, there's a Japanese word for it, but uh, where beauty is the imperfection. Yep. In, they crack the right, bowl. They crack the bowl. I can't remember. Oh, yeah, and they fill the, the crack with gold. Wabi-sabi. Wabi-sabi. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Nailed it. Good job. Word for word, Justin's bringing the most value. <laughs> me, Justin brings me, the noise. Justin, Justin first, me fourth, you two somewhere in the middle. See what else? So I have, uh, I have a question. Totally. So for... I think a lot of people, they do these activities, myself included, that can lead to flow, riding, skiing, surfing, but they don't get into flow every time. No. Have you found that there is a formula or a recipe <laughs> that gives you the highest percentage? Because you can tell afterwards, like, wow, that was a flow riding session. That was a flow surf yeah, session. I mean, like, it was 10 times more fun. How do I... We do, we, so, honestly, uh, and this is exactly what we do at Zero to Dangerous. Yep. This, is like, this, this is what our trainings are about. There are, there's a flow cycle. This is a map of the experience. If you know where you are in the cycle, you know where to go next. And there are triggers, 22 triggers. So if you can understand how the triggers work and you can understand the map of the cycle, you cannot, it's not a guaranteed, but you can make it reliable and repeatable. Mm -hmm. And the way I always like to say it is these days, 90% of the time when I go skiing, and I ski a lot, I'm in a flow state. Mm-hmm. 70% of the time when I write, I'm in a flow state, and, I, and this is a daily activity. Uh, if flow, for flow, when I'm researching the state of flow, that's often a really great flow state for me. Like I'm reading like a textbook and pausing and really thinking about, you know, that sort of thing, really deep flow. That's probably like 50%, right? Like that kind of thing. You can really up your percentages. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's sort of simple biology. It's not none of it is really really hard. I always say that, like the dirty little secret about peak performance is that ninety percent of what you're going to do, other than like kind of the goal setting exercise, like the stuff you have to do to get into the game, you have to line up your intrinsic motivators. You have to get goal setting right, and you have to train up grit skills, and those are mm-hmm. unpleasant, right? There's no way to train grit that's particularly pleasant. You got to do that stuff, but everything else is pretty much an item that goes in your schedule or an attitude with which you approach the item on your schedule. That's everything we're talking about here, right? Peak performance is a checklist. I mean, the world, I study people who turn, make the impossible possible, right? That's what I spent my life studying. Invariably, it's a checklist. Mm-hmm. So right? would, would get you be up, giving away your IP to go into that checklist? Because I don't want you, no, I don't I mean, want well, you to. I mean, the, but, but invariably people get up. I like, so I always talk about this. Let, let's just, talk about uh one of the flow triggers and, and how how it functions so clear goals is a flow trigger mm-hmm. and clear goals are really so you have i like to say there are three levels to grow goal setting there's massively transformative purposes on top right this is my mission statement i am here to make the planet a better place for animals or i'm here to write great books which are sort of two of mine um then underneath that, there are high, hard goals. All the sub-steps. I'm going to get a college degree. I'm going to write my first book. Right? Those are high, hard goals. Underneath that are your clear goals. This is the shit you're doing today. Mm-hmm. right? And clear goals are a flow trigger 
because they lower cognitive note. When goals are clear, so uh, like a clear goal is, I'm going to write 500 words of my new book, and the words are going to make you feel happy or make the reader feel happy or make the reader feel right. That would be a very clear goal. It's a very specific start. My answer to you, possible as a checklist, so when we teach this to people, right, it's a to-do list. Um, you obviously want to start, if you can, with your hardest task first for a lot of you know biological reasons. But there's only a certain number of things you can do in a day. I can do eight things and still be excellent at all of them. That's what I've discovered over time. Sometimes it's seven, sometimes it's nine. Usually it's about eight. So I make my clear goal list. It's got eight, eight things, things on it because I know I can only be excellent at eight things. Clear goals lists also, as you know, when you check them all off the list, right, you get a little bit of dopamine for every time you accomplish a goal. And uh, you can declare your day a win. And for peak performers who never like to chill out, being able to be like, oh, wow, I won the day. I can now is now is when I pause. Mm-hmm. Right. That's really, really, really fortunate. So my answer to you is figure out how many things you can be excellent in a day at and just do that. And don't deviate from that too much. So a, my answer. A, a more rigid schedule not rigid but it's not rigid i mean you can you can have as much freedom but like and you know i find like on my clear goal list there are like three or four things that they're really they're hard right maybe it's you know advance the novel Mm -hmm. 700 words kind of thing talk Um, to ben and charlie talk to ben and (laughs) struggle through that struggle through that you know and then you know nail some spikes through my (laughs) so So we got three or four things already (laughs) (laughs) that's that's why and then like but then the other i will be like make a phone call to so-and-so or walk my dog for an hour or you know that's good workout or blah 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 that sort of thing um so it's, you know, a couple of really hard and then diminish it. And, you know, obviously you vary it day to day based on your energy level and your focus level and, and where, you're, where you're at a little bit. But that's always what it looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, I, always, I, I like to tell the story of uh, like, so Peter DeMattis, my, my co-author, um, created the XPRIZE, which helped unlock the space frontier, right? Took space out of the hands of government, put it in the hands of ordinary people and actually turned space into a like a thriving business mm-hmm. and he didn't do it alone but he was very much responsible for it with the xprize and i've known peter for 20 some odd years and like want to know what it looked like when peter accomplished the impossible mm-hmm. he woke up he had breakfast he went somewhere he had a conversation he went somewhere else he had a conversation he typed into his computer for a while went somewhere else had a conversation then he had lunch mm-hmm. right i mean like yeah. is it doesn't look anything different than your days or your day or anybody else's day um it the quality of the conversations are a little bit different you know those kinds of things but we all have the same 24 hours and we're going to roughly do the same things with them anyways Mm -hmm. it's not it's not super we like to make it super fancy because we like to feel you know a lot more complicated than we are Mm -hmm. i have i have two more but if yeah yeah. well i just want to say because i think people are going to like this a lot and want to dig into it it's zero to dangerous i just want to reiterate zero to dangerous.com will get you there flowresearchcollective.com will get you there um zero to dangerous we do it one of two ways it's uh it's either two-day live training with me and the rest of the team followed by a, a digital class or it's the digital class and you go through the class 
uh, every all my coaches are either licensed psychologists, like they're PhD psychologists or neuroscientists. So you go through the class with a PhD psychologist or neuroscientist, um, and it's one of those two things. Cool. I just want. I think people are going to be hyped on yeah, that. Yeah. So, go so ahead. Uh, I know that you you can invest in a lot of ways. You can invest your time, your energy, and we we've seen where you've invested your time and energy. I'm curious if any of these particular technologies have stood out to you as a place to invest your wealth, your money. Uh, whether it's particularly, you know, AR, VR, uh, any of these. Um, I have some money in a handful of companies, but not a lot. I'd rather, like, at the Flow Research Collective, mm-hmm. we are working at the intersection of AI and VR mm-hmm. um, and networks. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm investing my company in, Got in some of these things. Um more than anything else um because uh uh when you like to live in the middle of nowhere and very far away and have a bunch of land like most mm-hmm. of my money went into my land and my Real house estate. yeah yeah so you still you're still being on the 3d world it's not going to be all <laughs> well i fast. like so i mean the, the one lesson <laughs> over and over and over again this is what i learned i mean multiple streams of income yep. right like multiple streams of income is the secret especially in an accelerating society um, especially if you're doing anything freelance mm-hmm. or entrepreneurial multiple streams of income so that's what I did over you know after the last and, and 2007 recession what I made less money in 2007 than I made the first year I was a journalist when I was 23 <laughs> I mean, wow it was terrifying wow. right it's it like was $9. I've gone bankrupt twice I've almost both once with when I got I was sick and I backed up myself and this 2007 I was very really close I was right yeah. on the edge um, and uh, so I've, after that I was like oh my god my whole industry has now gone away twice yeah. right like fool me once right fool me I was like oh not no multiple streams of income as much as possible that's something that we don't um, do yeah. <laughs> we should do that well, okay. what I'm trying to do is give I mean small tangent i want to give my money to smart other business owners get a small percentage of their business yeah. and then have them be my multiple streams of Tiny income. little private equity guy yeah yeah that's my goal um so baby, was, baby equity yeah baby equity with ben. i like that because angel seems so like uh, so big and no, baby's just you're so like yeah. you're like i'm gonna no, give you five much grand more and you're gonna give me a dollar a day for <laughs> yeah, your life yeah, or exactly. something like that right do i have five thousand days i think i do so and then the last one you'd mentioned it just briefly but you you said you work with dogs and you're you're trying to like move uh you have a program around that i'm just curious what you're up to with so um we're, we're morphing we uh because we moved recently so we shifted the rescue a little bit um but uh my wife and i uh we're still committed to this mission we do hospice care and special needs care we tend to work with very very old very very abused very, so if you're like if you were tied to a raider beaten for 10 years have cancer mm-hmm. one eye three legs and are an aggressive personality oh, wow. and the tendency to shit on the carpet <laughs> you're our dude oh, oh no. wow like we we and we did it when we were in new mexico we were living in the second poorest county in america with mm. the highest sense of animal cruelty so we literally Saw intentionally that, yeah. put ourselves on the front line and like when we created it my wife said look i want to do all the stuff that nobody wants to do i want to fill like three or four gaps right and i was just dumb enough not to know what the hell she was actually asking Mm -hmm. of me it's like absolutely honey let's do that yeah right i had no idea how much like suffering and heartbreak and difficulty i was in for um thank god but um now as i said we're trying to uh uh 
Joy is going to Joy is going to start finding ways to train a lot of other rescuers because a lot of people they get their hearts broken they, yeah. they they lose their lives to this because they'll find themselves you know suddenly overrun by trying animals to, trying to save every animal everything, and, yeah. right so I see, nobody, this, I see this yeah, all the time yeah no so nobody is actually training rescuers in any way and she doesn't I, mean, I don't think she actually I think she wants to give it away like podcast wasn't it so she's going to focus on that for a little that's while that's so smart I just have to because I, I I know a lot of these people and they are the least business savvy no they're terrible self care well, the like, they the, just have such bleeding hearts that they try to do everything except it's all on the front line with my own hands and not, not, that not highly so the other leveraged. one yeah. I, so I have um, and I'm not going to I'm not going to give this away because this is something that I am going to do <laughs> mm-hmm. but I spent 10 years thinking about the problem you just yeah and i was like why is because animal rescue in general there's no government funding right if you give Mm -hmm. money to the spca you are funding a euthanasia program that's what you're doing you're just paying to put animals down um so it's all private donation and give me your money is a terrible formula for anything um, when I'm much more interested in entrepreneurial solutions, right? Yeah. So is there an entrepreneurial solution to try to fund this stuff? So I have, I have, I think I have a idea that's good enough and uh, that'll, that'll create big enough revenue streams off of this and I want to use it to franchise. The Rancho de Chihuahua model, our, our organization is called Rancho de Chihuahua, is based on evolutionary psychology. We create environments very similar to the environment dogs evolved in so they feel safer. We have flow at the heart of our healing methodology for a number of reasons, but the neurochemicals that show up in the state, one, they reset the nervous system. For dogs, system. are you saying? Yeah. Like dogs dog get flow. Oh, yeah, dogs get into flow. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wrote a whole book about uh, this, Small Body. Furry Prayer. Small okay. Furry Prayer uh, talks about, so really about the relationship between humans and animals, but uh, most mammals can get into flow, especially mm-hmm. uh, social mammals. Um, and there are reasons for that, and we can yeah. talk about it, but we won't. Um, so anyways, we have a healing methodology that will... It works really well. We can take a dog with like late stage cancer, whatever, supposed to live a couple of months from the vet, and mm-hmm. we can get four or five years wow. of really. And we take our dogs off leash into the backcountry every mm-hmm. day hiking. So, like when I say healthy fiber, and I mean like they're hiking five the miles a day ever, yeah. in, in the mountain kind of thing. So, I like our model. I think it works. Um, it's very effective for the animals, uh, and I want to franchise it. And mm-hmm. so, I think I've got a, an entrepreneurial based way to fund to pay for it and so i am like there are you know a couple of industries and partners and whatever mm-hmm. so that's what i'm working on is how do how do you do that um that's, that's awesome and i and i also uh i'm not deeply involved in it anymore but i helped start a company called planet home uh that was trying to bring environmentalists and technologists together to solve big grand issues my issue being biodiversity because animals again mm-hmm. um so I just try. I was like, we, we always say this at Rancho de Chihuahua. I mean, we we literally traded thirteen years of our lives. Where my wife and I have never uh, been on a honeymoon. Wow. We have been on two vacations together, and both of them were two day vacations. So in we've been married for fourteen years. We've had two vacations where we've taken them together, and no honeymoon because it's all been given to the dogs, and that's fantastic. And we did a lot of good when we when we were operating it. We probably helped. It was uh, we rehomed and found and, and like five or six hundred dogs. We wow. on our outreach programs, we probably helped another five thousand, six thousand, um, and that's a lot of lives. But 
like they kill 20 million dogs yeah. a year so like i didn't even freaking dent december right <laughs> yeah, and yeah. we like it was 13 years of our life and we didn't even just dent december so like okay there's, there's gotta, gotta be, be a bigger lever yep right there's got so i i've been looking for bigger levers that is awesome because i often think when i see these people with they they are so willing to put in Heart equity, sweat equity, they'll clean up the poop, but it's like there is not a business mind <laughs> amongst uh, them going, how do we uh, do this? No, at all. And worse, they're massively empathetic. Yep. Which, and so they right, can't, it's, it's, they're so it, reactive to every, everything. oh, there's dog, I gotta, like, yeah. I gotta pick that one up, can somebody please? And so they can't no, I mean, step but back. Driving through a city, well, driving through New Mexico with my wife was terrifying because, like, people treated their animals like shit and there were stray dogs all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, like, we could go out for some ice cream and come back with four dogs, yeah, right? Like yeah, it was yeah. like it was terrifying after a certain point, right? Yeah. Like I was like, how much of my money am I going to oh, give man. to the dogs? Like, so this is a great segue for for I guess this is my last one right now. But you've done a lot of things. You've mentioned that they've been difficult at times. That writing has nearly killed you. That there was a tremendous amount of suffering involved yeah. with this animal rescue. I'm curious of the things in your life. What is net really been the most fulfilling or brought you the most joy what are the handful of things whether it's the dog rescue the career your relationships and then i'd be also curious on the backside is there something that you pursued kind of doggedly that just didn't fulfill oh yeah there's i mean there are a lot of answers on that but Mm -hmm. um i only as i said i do six things Mm -hmm. right i try to make the world a better place for animals Mm -hmm. i try to write books that have an enormous impact and both at it from a craft and art perspective yeah. and from a content perspective um try to hurl myself down mountains at high speeds yeah it's another one skiing right skiing, on. skiing down the mountain <laughs> biking sometimes it's surfing and it's a it's yeah. a little variation mountains of water um uh i do that the friends and family you know mm-hmm. what i mean like on the my favorite thing to do in the world is laugh at my best friend. Like mm-hmm. I will, I will take laughing my best friend over. I will take anything else okay. pretty much. Um, so, you know, I, it's really like those things are, are amazing. Um, I, uh, as of yet cannot play a musical instrument despite mm-hmm. a lot of trying. Okay. Like I can do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I cannot seem to play. I can dance. I can draw. Mm-hmm. I write. <laughs> I cannot, and I want like my retirement plan for flow um, is uh, is a musical instrument, right? Like mm-hmm. if I if I get my body can't get to the point where I can't hurl myself down mountains. Though I saw this amazing exoskeleton for skiing the other day, <laughs> so and I like out here now. Like it was like I, it was one of the inventions of the year. I can't, maybe it was a time invention of the year, but I was like, oh good, my ski just got really long. <laughs> nice. Just gonna awesome. be knocking like, down as long trees as we can, as long as we can slow. fight back climate change, and I can keep my winters. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but the uh, transformer going down the mountain. <laughs> I don't care how ugly it looks. I yeah. just care how it makes me feel. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, there, there are, um, I, you know, the other thing is, is music, the, unfuf- the unfulfilling m- one, music, music was one. I mean, there are, there are so many colossal, ridiculous, silly failures okay. along the way. Um, I helped start uh, six or seven or eight or nine different magazines. Um, I think a couple of them are still in existence, but mm-hmm. like there was a lot of that stuff. I was involved in a lot. Was of Was it unfulfilling? So I'm this. I'm, I'm yeah, so not I, I actually don't mind it. Yeah. Oh, unsuccessful. Oh, unfulfilling. 
Yeah, if, if like so, I think things that in my life have been unfulfilling. I'll give you a brief example. Like I, I do enjoy the videos that I make. I enjoy the content process. But I thought that having a bit of internet, you know, effless celebrity notoriety would be bring any amount of joy, and it hasn't. Like the the millions of subscribers are only uh, fulfilling insofar that I feel that I've helped people. But the fact that I am recognized is. Uh, ultimately, it's empty calories. I know. Yeah, yeah it's the completely fame. empty. So I'm curious if you've if you've been. Oh wow! Like I, I really went for that, and it and it didn't it didn't fill me up in the way that I'd hoped. Because it sounds so, like the well, dog will, and the skiing. By the way, I will tell you. This, I will tell you. This is actually. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I will say this. Um, magazine journalism, this thing that I loved more than anything. So that still this day is a fiefdom run by New York magazine editors mm-hmm. and um, they're not they're, it's a very closed insular group of people mm-hmm. and a lot of them are not my favorite people in the world at mm-hmm. all uh, there was a previous generation of editors I love but <coughs> and it would that would be very very fr- like that was very very frustrating this mm-hmm. thing that I loved and the people I was working with I just I had a really hard time connecting I would go to New York I'd go into these meetings and I'd feel like I was back in high school like yep. I felt like oh you're in a click and you're just <laughs> judging me mm. like I like I don't ever feel shitty about myself but I'm with like the people I work with and you make me feel terrible yeah right no wonder I work like long so there was some of that stuff where it was around peg in a square hole kind of thing um and I think that, that's that's applicable to a lot of people which is having to spend your day at work or elsewhere with people that don't make you feel good even if the industry is one you're interested in that'll that'll suck the life right out of you yeah it'll take the life right out of you and, and certainly like the worst thing ever is to be unrewarded for your work right like the, mm-hmm. the the number one cause of burnout is i give my heart and soul to this thing and you don't recognize it i there are books i've written that mm-hmm. were horrific experiences horrific experiences really just difficult unpleasant and i mean that's one of the funny things about you know i've written a lot of bestsellers some of them i think are great some of them i don't like i'm like i really feel the same like, way really? about my video reception right? i'm like really that's a bet like bold for example was i it was on the bestsellers for 10 weeks 12 weeks 14 i mean like yeah. some it was like both an interesting book and like uh, but it like it's my least one of my least favorite books mm-hmm. and you know it's done remarkably yeah. well and okay yeah. right what, like what was one that you loved and when you wrote it you're like this is going to be amazing and then last no one tango last tango was that the book for sure um and the reason is this is a, a repeated problem in my life is um I don't I have a really hard time figuring out where the mainstream is I'm just not mm-hmm. that right so Last Hang was another one of those I thought it was going to go wide I thought everybody was going to read it like no it was so stylized I didn't even realize how stylized it was and it's really a little right and it great reception was a sort of was an Amazon bestseller but not it didn't go I thought it was going to go everywhere and yeah. that you know that was a that was a tough one better now I like small furry prayer was the worst of those because I was so poor and it was nominated for a Pulitzer everybody thought it was going to explode and I was so sure it was going to change my life and what I mean by that was like financial stability yeah, right? yeah, like yeah. actually finally yes um, and it was it was the funniest it was the funniest book in the world because it became a bestseller but it took a year and a half 
I don't know why, but like mm-hmm. a year and a half later, huh. it suddenly was all over on the Wall Street Journal bestseller and, you know, that sort of thing. And it took a really long time to get there. And everybody, including the publisher and me, that was just, I mean, I had worked so hard and mm-hmm. so long. You know what I mean? So there were those, those ex- a lot of those experiences along Books the way. Books are tough because you, you really, a lot of the things can be co-created today. And books are one that oftentimes don't get seen by the audience until they're completed <laughs> same thing with movies and that kind of stuff yeah. and man i mean you put in a year or more on, into some of these and the other thing is i've learned though um and you may i'm interested to see if this starts to happen to you with some mm-hmm. of your videos so i always say and i know this now but it took me a long time to figure this out that you can't judge the success of a book for at least six years oh it's true it's videos. really slow right it's really, like you have no idea mm-hmm. what the so you you have really long before you can actually say mm-hmm. this was a f- success this was a failure um, but it's nice to overreact week one isn't it <laughs> to freak out it's, it's or, or, well, I, you, <laughs> you know I, I now go massively far out of my way to get things in between me and my ability to check like the oh. Amazon ranking. I'm yeah. like, how's my book doing? How's my book yep. doing? Or how many yep. hits does my video have? Right? Like those cheap dopamine loops, those are the thing. Like, so if you come to a flow, flow uh, research collective event, all our gear says, never trust the dopamine. Yeah. And by the way, flow is built out of dopamine. Like yeah. it, you need this, but it says never trust the dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's cause it, you know, it can often be, re- it's, a lot often empty calories and things that it's not long-term value we were talking about this earlier it's funny people come to us very often because they 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 want success right they peak performance they want success mm-hmm. and they're disappointed uh because success quality rises to the top and success is if there's a shortcut out there it's not going to produce lasting success. Mm-hmm. It, you may end up making a bit of money at some point because you game the system, but you didn't learn. Anything. Like there's no learning along the way, and you didn't develop your craft. Right? Peak performance and success. These things work by compound interest. The interesting thing is all the things. That, so the question I was asked people is, no, no, I can't, material success, that sort of thing. Like you still have to earn that the old fashioned way. But all the things you think you need material success for happiness well-being mm-hmm. overall life satisfaction passion purpose like all that stuff turns out that stuff is low-hanging fruit and mm-hmm. i can teach all that stuff you get with flow right and flow over time your performance will get better for sure massively but it's even almost a with, cherry on top at that even point. with but even with the massive improvement success is still a long road mm-hmm. it just is it's like it's climbed very slowly and you know, you can get famous by accident. You can have Brad Pitt's abs, and you can get cast in Thelma and Louise, mm-hmm. right? That can happen. But you can't have Brad's career mm-hmm. without being great. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Nobody, you can get famous accidentally. You cannot stay famous accidentally. Nobody has stayed famous accidentally. And I don't care or stayed successful accidentally mm-hmm. in any field. It's too hard, and there's too much competition. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I don't know if that. No, it's great. I, I like that. I like that to wrap. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. You guys want to get lunch? Let's eat. Let's <laughs> Thank eat. you, everybody. Thanks for Thanks, listening. Guys. Thanks for watching. Hope Peace. this wasn't too boring. <laughs>
please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people. 